This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. All I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Greetings, friends and foes, saints and sinners. Welcome to another episode of Stop and Think About It. In a slight departure from how we normally structure our podcast, we asked many of you what questions you would like us to address. Well, we heard you, and we're going to tackle a few of those questions on today's episode titled Biblical Answers to Ecclesiastical Questions. Question number one. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Question number two, should a church hire or raise up elders? And question number three, are Christians required to forgive unconditionally at all times? What does the Bible say about these things? Well, to find out, please join us as we take this time to stop and think about it. Hello? Hello, anybody home? I think, McFly, think. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. What were you thinking? I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Don't say anything now. Just think about it. You're listening to Stop and Think About It, a podcast for the Christian thinker. In a day when sound biblical preaching has been replaced by man-centered entertainment and the church has become increasingly anti-intellectual, this podcast will encourage believers to think biblically and theologically. So please join me as we get ready to stop and think about it. Welcome to another episode of Stop and Think About It. We have our crew with us. We have Steve, the Brooklyn Berean with us. That would be me. We also have Glenroy, the West Indian wordsmith. Wagwan, brethren. And we also have myself, yours truly, your host, Phil Sessa, also known as the Sensei. So to boot, we have to ask the question, what are ecclesiastical questions? What does that even mean? Glenn? Well, ecclesiastic from the word ecclesiast, which means church. So these are questions that are pertaining mostly to the church, if not specifically about it. Okay. And so the first question that we want to tackle today is, can a born-again Christian lose his or her salvation and just to preface, we know that this question has been debated very often by men that have much higher degrees than us. Some of them even have PhDs. What does that stand for, Steve? A pothole digger? A pothole I digger. I it was a player-hating degree. A player-hating degree. Or a yeah. phenomenal hairdo. Ooh, yeah. and Glenroy has that as we speak. <laughs> I, I thank my barber. <laughs> there you go. So are we talking about lose, like how you'd lose your car in the parking lot, lose your keys in the house? That's a good Well, it's something you had, and now something you don't have any longer. I, you know, I, I think the question is so flippant. It's so, you know, it's, it, it's so man-dependent as opposed to God-dependent. I think that's where we have to start. Like, where do we get, who gives, do we earn the salvation ourselves by what we do, or, does, or is it a gift of God? It's kind of, how, how do you lose that? I guess it's understanding what salvation is, mm-hmm. right, and who is the one who actually does the saving. But there are verses, if we do look in the Bible, that seem to suggest at face value that a Christian can lose their salvation. Talking about like Hebrews. Exactly. Now, do you think that the term Christian has to be defined? In other words, 
Is a Christian a person who said a prayer, walked an aisle, raised his hand, said the magic words in the re- magic part of the room? Yes. <laughs> if that's a criteria, you can lose it. If that's a criteria, you can lose it. Because you can go to a different part of the room and then, I guess, drop those, uh, those words off. Can a born-again Christian that has been regenerated go back to being dead in their sins and transgressions, become a child of wrath with Satan as their father once again, and become un regenerate and unborn again no <laughs> next when, question when you phrase it like that when you phrase it like that next question right and so i i would emphatically joyfully and assuredly give a resounding no not on your life well well i think i think john 17 kind of gives a good um way of looking at it verse uh, six it says jesus when he was in um Gethsemane and he's He's praying and he says, I have manifested your name unto men, which you have given me of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them, given them to me, and they have kept your word. Basically, he's saying God has given men to him. Yes. So, so how can we then lose what God has given to Jesus himself? Right. And so I was thinking that to answer this question, shouldn't we start off looking at the Savior Himself, yes, right, and so First um, Timothy one fifteen it says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Which sinners is He going to save? Is He going to save all sinners, most sinners, some sinners, one or two sinners, and then coupled with that, Matthew uh, chapter one verse twenty one says she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his, his people. people from their sins. Unless they lose it. Unless they lose it. That's that's kind of what, that's the only way to look at that question. They're is, kind of putting a parenthesis in there, mm-hmm. unless they lose it. Or he will try to save his people mm. from their sins. He who began a good work in you will complete it if you do your part. Until the day of Christ Jesus. So those little words like he will save, like these sound like very definite, concrete, put the nail in the coffin. He will complete it until the day of Christ wait, Jesus. He didn't say, wait, he didn't say, I think it is finished? He didn't say that. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm reading a different version. So would we agree that therefore those who are not saved in the end from their sins is mm. because they are simply not his people? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord. So who are the people that say, Lord, Lord? The people who consider themselves to be Christians. So they call him Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I once knew you, but you backslid, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Doesn't say that. Oh, wait, it doesn't? Doesn't say that. (laughs) It says in verse 23, and I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. So here are people who call Jesus Lord, who cast out demons, who do mighty works in the name of Jesus, and they actually prophesy and preach. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Not for a second. Not for a moment. Not, not for a moment. So they weren't people who 
we're gifted and we're saved, but then because of practicing sin, lost their salvation, they never had salvation in the first place. It's kind of hard to get around that word never, right? <laughs> well, okay, let's, let's jump to another verse, Hebrews 6, verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So does this passage beg the question, how can one be, quote, enlightened and fall away? Because it does seem to be speaking of someone losing his or her salvation, or does it? I think the key words are here are tasted, which, which, which implies that they, they, they haven't really fully been saved. They're not... They, I would, in a modern way, be someone who just attends church, hasn't really been baptized, you know, doesn't really affirm Christ, but they would consider them a Christian because of their church attendance. That's one way of looking at it. They've tasted it. They're hearing good preaching. They're, 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 they're attending the church functions. They're trying to live a pretty good life, but they haven't submitted under the authority of Christ. So you would say that is the they. Yeah. And from what have they fallen away from then? So, the context of the book is about Jews who were coming to faith in Christ. And so the temptation was for some to go back to Judaism, to go back to the law, to go back to the, the shadows and types. They tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away, fallen away to where? Back to Judaism, back to the types and shadows where Christ is the fullness of the types and shadows. And so they were going to go back to Judaism. If they went back to the types and shadows, it's impossible again to restore them to salvation. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that that pointed to, and he's the Savior. There's no salvation in goats and bulls and, uh, and animals. Salvation is in Christ. So they were going back to the types and shadows instead of the fullness, which is Christ. So does enlightened here mean that they were regenerated? No. I, I think, from, especially from your very clear explanation, is that enlightened means that it wasn't a, a case of they didn't really understand. Like they were saved, but they didn't understand the difference. But no, they truly understood that Christ is the fulfillment. And then they said, no, we're going to go back to, to the laws, to the, sh- the foreshadowing. That, I think, is enlightened in the sense that they know. You know, because I want to, I want to distinguish between people who were saved, but they're not in a good church. They may not know all the biblical truths, but these people know they were taught. And I think this ties in with the parable of the seed and the sower, mm. because one if you of keep my readings, he says in verse seven, "For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and it produces what a crop useful for those for who the sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God." But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So which soil produces good fruit? Yeah, only one out of four. Exactly. (laughs) And so that's the soil of a, a regenerate heart. So here we have soil that's producing thorns and thistles. But then look at verse 9. Phil, what does he say in verse 9? Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. So here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, but for you, beloved, 
He's calling them beloved. Does the Bible address unbelievers as beloved? Never. Never. And he said, what does he say about the beloved? We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, for those who fall away and go back to Judaism, there is no more hope of salvation in the shadows and types because Christ is a fulfillment. And the ground that produces thorns and thistles is bad soil, but the ground that produces fruit is good soil. But we have better uh, things for you, things that uh, relate to salvation. So he's speaking to believers that can't fall away. And what does Jesus say in John 6? I mean, I think these verses are very clear. If you look at John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Glenn mentioned in uh, John 17 that God gave men, people to Jesus. And Jesus said, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal love, eternal life, and I will try to raise him up on the last day if he behaves. <laughs> no, no. No. I will raise him up on the last you day. You have a very questionable version. <laughs> there you go. Is that the message? Yeah, it's the new Arminian version. the new Arminian version, the message. Right. And let me just throw this one last verse in, Romans eight thirty. I, I love this verse. Uh, here's what he says. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called... He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those who he predestined, he also called, and then justified, and then glorified. This we also see in the Ordo Salutis, which means? The Ordo of Salvation. There you go. Glorification is the final state of permanent salvation. Here's what the verse is saying. All those that are called, with nobody dropping out, are justified. All those that are justified with nobody dropping out are glorified. So if all that are called are justified and all justified are glorified, where's the loophole or the slightest inkling that this order can be thwarted, especially since no man can stay his hand? Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. So if salvation is a monergistic act of God, you did nothing to save yourself and you could do nothing to keep yourself but let's move on to question number two should we be raising up elders in the church or should we hire elders in the church i think it really is a matter of context um if there's a church where there is no men which is it's hard to believe no men that can be raised up I, i think maybe i think it's something that we should think about but i Majority of churches don't have that issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think that the context is very important and the situation is very important from church to church. Uh, We know in Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5, Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer is God's steward 
must be above reproach. And then he continues with more characteristics. So Paul says, appoint elders in every town. Why would he say that? I think it's implying from where they're from. Exactly. Not some far off land. And and if we go further down, verses, uh, verse 10, 11, the, 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 the reason why this is so important, and I think this is a very good section to talk about, is that he was talking about how Christians were are liars. The, 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 the unasked question was, well, are there any good, can we find anyone good in Crete to, to be leaders? And he actually, you think it's weird, he does like a character assassination of the, of the, of the, of the, of the uh, place, of Crete. He talks about how they're liars, they're vain talkers, they're unruly, and he says, yet, naming them and saying all these things, he says, appoint them from there. You got to find people faithful in that environment. And so if you hire someone from outside, how 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 is the church going to know that he fulfills the qualifications that you just read? That's a good point. That's a because good point. a pastor who's among the people and he's a pastor already, not in name, but in his heart, he's he's someone who's doing the work. So you don't appoint someone a pastor and they become a pastor. You don't appoint an elder and that person just becomes an elder. You appoint an elder who's already a pastor. He's already living it out among the people. And, correct? and, and you have to love the people. Exactly. I think it's one of the priorities. You have to have a pastor's heart and it's hard to force someone like that on a community. So, so I think the, the, the way to address this question is there are some exceptions I think people focus on. But the rule is it has to be from among you. And, and, and I'm sorry, I have not been to a church where there haven't been candidates there, men who, unless it's a very new or very small church, men there who you can't train up to be pastors. It's a failure of the church. Mm-hmm. They look to see if, if churches were doing their jobs, seminaries would be, would be out of business. Yeah. Think True story. Right. Right. If churches were raising up men and discipling men and teaching them biblical doctrine, theology, church history, teaching them how to be pastors, right? How to be leaders in the home. It starts in the home, right? And in the church, then seminaries would be out of business because the church would be producing. He doesn't say go to a seminary and hire a pastor. He says from among your own. He says appoint elders in every city. You said one of my favorite words. I got to jump on this. What's one of my favorite words? Starts with a D. Disciple. Disciple. I mean, listen, discipleship, uh, to, to, to raise up those that are less spiritually mature and to raise them up to become more spiritually mature, I mean, I think that's where it's at. Look at the model of Jesus. Jesus spends three to three and a half years with 12 men and he raises them up and they become the leaders of the church. And then those men continue on the process. I guess it depends on what denomination and what church you're in. In a lot of the churches in America, especially a lot of the mega churches, a lot of these um, seeker-friendly churches, their goal is not so much to train up men, but to fill seats. There you go. So they, Stephen Furtick, who once said that once you become a Christian, this church is no longer for you. It's for the unbeliever. And the church is not for the unbeliever. The church is for the community of saints. It's for the, the saint, for the Christian. Right? The very word church means the exactly. called out ones. Exactly. So the role and goal of a church is to raise up and disciple and train and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Right. Ephesians chapter four. Right. He gave it teachers, apostles, prophets, pastors. You know. So if the church is doing their job, 
by training people, then there'll be men to raise up. But the churches are so focused on uh, seeker sensitive. Let's fill the building and try to bring as many people as uh, we can in and fill as many seats that they're not focusing on discipling men, but filling pews. And therefore, we're lacking pastors. So now seminaries are needed because we don't have any guys here we trained up. We have to go look for them somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, imagine if the military just, you know, grabbed a couple civilians, you know, walking on the sidewalk and, 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 you know, put up some balloons, drew them in and said, okay, now we want you to lead the Navy SEALs right now. I mean, <laughs> that would be a disaster, wouldn't definitely, it? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> and you would say, well, don't you, aren't you training anyone? No, nah, no, nah, we're not training anyone, but we're just going to find you. You can come in and do it. Yeah, and you can't just throw a label on somebody. I like what you guys said before. It's someone who's already walking in that. I mean, and then you're just kind of calling that person what they obviously are. I forgot who it was. Maybe it was Muhammad Ali or one of the boxers says, champions aren't made in the ring. They're just recognized there. And I think with pastors and elders and church leaders, you're just recognizing what they already are. And the church sees that and appoints them because they're gifted and they're walking in it already. So, so, uh, so I agree with everything you're saying, but an exception, let's say you're, you just happen to be in the church. No man can be raised up. There's no one there. At that point, I still wouldn't hire another pastor discipleship gets a man in there to disciple someone that's there yeah and so raise them up I have model a, it demonstrate it i have a modern day example so uh i i met a brother from uh another church and who had not been trained in biblical exegesis hermeneutics preaching and so just started to train him just started to disciple him uh, in t- it's looked like the, the calling was upon his life and we just started to train him and, and he's doing a good job. So we didn't go out and hire somebody. We just trained him and he's doing the work. So, so, so there's, there's two things. If we go back to Titus that I want to focus on, the implication here is once again, he named all these bad things about the people in Crete of Crete. And then he says, appoint them. He, he, he the assumption, the belief is there are good people there. There are men who could be raised up. I think we have to have the same heart when we approach this question. We can't approach it as there aren't any good people. There has to be, there's someone there that God has placed in that midst to become a pastor. And it's true. Look at verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So he's saying, these Cretans who are liars and lazy gluttons and saying things, rebuke them sharply and kick them out of the church? No, rebuke them so that they would be sound in faith. What are one of the qualifications for an elder? Sound in faith. So you're shaping and discipling these men who are not qualified to make them qualified. Yes. So I guess what we're saying ultimately is... The preference would be to raise men up. If at all possible, raise men up. Mm-hmm. The exception? Maybe you have to send a church that has many elders, you have to send them one of your elders there for a while. I, I would say temporarily have someone there and raise and, and disciple someone. I, I would prefer it be someone from the neighborhood, from the area who knows the people, 
I think, I think, I think anything other than that is a command that God, the Bible does not say. But I think these are preferences. I think it's better in these circumstances. Even if I can, maybe I don't know if the word hybrid is right. If there's a person who seems to be gifted, normally it's the church that sends them to seminary. They go and they come back mm-hmm. to yeah. the church. Right. So I'm not. We're not tossing seminaries like out of the window per se. Right. No. Right. But I think they be they need to be utilized in their proper context. But some churches don't need seminaries because they do an excellent job of training up men in the congregation in doctrine, theology, church history, yes. uh, hermeneutics, you know, so we see that. So, so like, so the, the, the short of it is it depends on the context preference would be a local pastor, someone in the church. And I think we have a, a tendency to overly depend upon seminaries. Yes, I would, I would tend to agree with that. All right. So our final question is, are Christians required to forgive unconditionally at all times? No. What? <laughs> what? Look no. At, look at Glenn's face. Come on now. <laughs> I'm looking at Glenn's face. Steve, we didn't discuss this before. What are you talking about? Explain. <laughs> okay, let's explain. Steve, I forgive you. It's okay. <laughs> I don't, because he didn't ask for my forgiveness. Okay. <laughs> there are two issues I think we have to address with this question, right? Those who ask for forgiveness... Mm. and those who don't ask for forgiveness. But before we start, there are two verses that we need to look at because the Bible does seem to tell us it's a glory to overlook a transgression. So if you look at Proverbs 19.11, yes. Phil, do you have that? I do. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Mm. And then Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but here's that famous verse, love covers all offenses, and 1 Peter 4, 8 kind of quotes that and says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I'm confused. So the answer is yes? We should forgive? No? No. Okay. So here's the thing. There are offenses that we should look over, things that people do, because the Bible says bear with one another. Right? So we offend people all the time. All I know day long, I do. Don't we? With little quirks we do, little things we do. We might say something, a microaggression. Spiritual gift. Exactly. Right? So. How did you know my spiritual gift was that? I've recognized it for many years, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so we should overlook small offenses that mm. really aren't a big thing, right? right? We should show grace to our brother and believe the best. You know what? He didn't mean it that way. Mm. Or he's having a bad day. So there are things we can overlook. But the Bible commands us that we shouldn't overlook certain things, and we're going to look at that. So there's much confusion about forgiveness. If someone doesn't ask for it, if someone doesn't repent, can we forgive them? So we see this in the news all the time, don't we? When there's a tragedy that happens... We hear about a Christian who offers forgiveness. So, Glenn, read that story that I found in the paper. Right. We're not going to say the person's name just for, you know, it doesn't help the story. M was left for dead after attackers viciously beat him with a hammer. His wife and 10-year-old daughter were murdered in the random home invasion. But citing his Christian faith, M is choosing to forgive. The 39-year-old says his faith has made it possible to forgive the killer who perpetrated what local police called one of the most heinous crimes in memory. 
As a believer in Christ, I know that God forgives all the sins of those who have faith in him. In this, I am instructed to forgive first, M says. But is M correct? Are we instructed to just forgive without repentance? Are we to forgive those who don't ask for forgiveness? That's what's been heard and perpetuated out there. That even seems to be like Christian cultural verbiage. Yeah, it sounds like he's saying he's going to be the bigger person and just get over it. I'm not really sure if the Bible says that. When they go low, we go high. I I think the problem is defining what forgiveness is. Right. But not just forgiveness. What is biblical forgiveness look like? Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the question is, how and when did God forgive us? I hope he did it the day he saved me. Yeah. So when does God forgive us? So 1 John 1, nine says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Phil, when does God forgive us? When we confess our sins. When we confess our sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, speaking about the new covenant. And what is one of the blessings of the new covenant? Do you have that verse, Phil? I do. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what does forgiveness look like to God? Well, forgiveness to God looks like when he does not hold your sin against you any longer. Yeah. So he forgives us when we do what? When we confess our sin. And he doesn't remember our sins anymore. God will not bring them up again. So does God forget our sins? Not really. Because if God forgot, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be all-knowing. He just chooses not to hold those sins against us anymore. Mm. The offense has been removed, so there's nothing between me and God. So let's look at what the Bible says about forgiveness. So in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, Phil, what does it say? Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So here Jesus is speaking, right? So when Jesus speaks, we should listen. Absolutely. Jesus said, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, just forgive him. No. It doesn't say that? No. No. What does it say? What? Step one, rebuke him. So if your brother sins, this is a command, rebuke him. When somebody sins against us, Jesus wants us to confront them, bring the evidence to them, point out their sin to them, explain to them what they've done. Why is that a merciful thing? Why would it be unmerciful for me just to forgive Phil if Phil was real nasty to me in front of other people and blew his top and I just said, you know what? I'm just going to let it go and forgive him. I'm just going to keep doing it to other people. Exactly. And I'm going to keep doing it to you. Exactly. So, And, And also, you really haven't forgiven him. You haven't addressed it. But for Phil, it's not merciful because now here's an opportunity for sanctification for Phil. Phil doesn't realize he's acting this way. And while I'm bringing it to him now, now he's being presented with an area where he can grow in sanctification and repent. What if, what if, what if you're like not, not a confrontational person? I mean, This is the hard part because a lot of people aren't confrontational, right? Mm-hmm. They don't like to confront. 
So what they do is exactly what we said. You know what? I'm not going to address it and I'm just going to forgive them. But, but you would say they don't really love the other person if they do that. It's not being loving to yeah. the other person because you're thinking about yourself mm-hmm. and not the other person. Jesus said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. So you have to go to him and rebuke. And then what's the result? And if he repents, what are we to do? Forgive, forgive him. him. So the and first you must thing, do that. If he sins rebuke him and if he repents forgive him and if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying i repent you must forgive him so jesus lays out the model of biblical forgiveness biblical forgiveness is not cleansed against me so i'm just going to forget about it now if it's a minor thing can i overlook a transgression yeah, I would say so. We'd have sure. to. Sure. But if it's an area of sanctification in Glenn's life, and I love my brother, is it a loving thing for me to let it go and not address it to Glenn if it's hurting other people? No. If it's a sin and it's not a, just a preference, if it's a sin, you got to address it. Especially yeah. don't go to 20 other people and exactly. tell them about it. It says go to your brother and re- rebuke him, right? Isn't there another passage that deals with that? We're going to look at that. So this is the people who you rebuke and confront and he repents of his sin. And if he does it again, he comes back seven times asking you for forgiveness and you must forgive him. Now, what about those who don't repent when you confront them? Forgive them anyway, right? That's No? It's a wash. (laughs) Yeah. But isn't that what people would say? Yeah, I mean, I think... When I first became saved, that's what I thought. I thought you just forgive everybody. Forgive and that's forget. That's just the way you show love is just be forgiving and a punching bag, basically. What if I came to you and said, Glenn, if I've done anything, would you forgive me? I want you to specify what you exactly. did. <laughs> so I can't just say if because I'm not really repenting of anything. Yeah. It says rebuke your brother. You don't go to your brother if he sinned. You go to your brother when he sinned and you bring specific evidence to him to show him. I also think it's not fair exactly. to, to keep it vague. Now, for the person who doesn't repent, we have a verse to go to, a whole uh, a portion of Scripture in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And Jesus clearly maps out and shows us what biblical forgiveness or unforgiveness looks like. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's a process here. There are steps that we are to follow. We are not to go from step one to the last step. We are to go from step one, two, three, and four. So what is step one? It's the same as we saw in Luke chapter 17. So Jesus is not contradicting himself. What is the first thing you do when someone sins against you? What does he say right here? If your brother sins against you, blast him on Facebook. No. If your brother sins against you, go tell the pastor so the pastor can clean it up. I like that one. <laughs> Very non-confrontational. Well, in all reality, that's, that's what people do. That's what most people do. Yeah, they don't confront you. They go to the pastor. They go to a friend. They tell 50 people, but they don't go to directly. What to if you tell the pastor's wife? 
<laughs> that, that, that's a little disconnect, right? Oh, okay. So no, step no. one is, if your brother sins against you, step one, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. One-on-one. One-on-one. Rebuke him. Yes. Bring the evidence to him. Show him what he's done. In a loving way, some confrontation is going to go on. And And if I may... My heart just bleeds here because, brothers and sisters, please, if you don't do this, if you skip over step one and go to the pastor, please stop. Please go to the person. You're going to save us as pastors a lot of time and a lot of energy, and you're really sinning by not going to step one. And and, and what's the benefit of step one? If he listens... (laughs) If reconciliation you, yeah, yeah. And, and so like you've cleaned up the mess and it doesn't need to go any further so step one is you tell him now what happens if he listens to you you have gained your brother and listens is like repentance he exactly. absolutely there's reconciliation so, there's repentance so you gained him yes how what does that mean you gained him so we talked about losing salvation, but I, which we say you can't do, <laughs> yeah. but you can lose that relationship with your brother. Because there's an offense that comes between you and your brother, and so there's a separation now. Yeah, Genesis chapter 4, you are your brother's keeper. Exactly. So now here we see that if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, Luke doesn't address this, Matthew does. This is step two. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't listen, you take one or two others along with you. Preferably some big, strong guys. Absolutely. So when do you bring in other people? When he does not repent, when he does not listen. Hold up, hold up. So you don't just forgive him? No. Oh, okay. Well, Jesus says it here. If he listens, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take two or three. Right? So you need to go and take two or three more people, and then you come back and you... Go over step one again with two other people with you. Yeah, so you, you are sharing with others. Now, that's just two or three anybody's in the church? I, I would think it's someone you're close to who knows both of you, who the other person respects. Do you think it would probably be someone maybe who has some level of maturity? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right, so you got to be careful as to could who. It be, could it be elders? It could be. It right. could possibly be. So, and I think we'll talk about that because I think people get confused here. So he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, right? So what does he mean by tell it to the church? Does he mean tell the pastors or actually to the whole congregation? I think it's the whole congregation. And before we go there, just remember, at that point, if he listens, if he repents, Everyone's gained a bro- you gain a brother exactly. Right. So if he listens when you bring the two or three, you've gained your brother. Yes. Now he's come to his senses or she's come to her senses, and says, "You know what? You're right. Please forgive me." And then it's it, it stops right there. It stops right there. So, it's squashed. So, it's over. So I think bringing it to the church means you bring it before the congregation, like it's a formal thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if he doesn't listen to you alone or two or three witnesses, which could be elders, what is the next step? Tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. And here's where a lot of people struggle, right? That's gossip. You can't tell a lot of people what's going on. But what does Jesus say? Tell it to the church. That's called church discipline, which a lot of churches don't even practice today. 
So he says, tell it to the church. Why is he telling it to the church? To shame the person and to condemn them or to bring them to repentance? To Absolutely, to bring them to yeah, repentance. You know, I think it's a loving act. Cause it is. It, 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 it's kind of like, because you can, you can have a disagreement with one person and think the other person's just bad, mad against you. But when the whole congregation comes to you and say, hey, brother, I think you were wrong in this situation, it's helpful. Yeah. And so if the whole church hears the situation and the whole church says, brother, you're wrong... For you to rebel against that mm. is a serious issue. Yeah. And I, I would say here, I think that when you're telling it to the church, I think that the elders of the church would be leading how they're dealing with church discipline, right? So that it's done with wisdom, it's done with love, and it's done with proper church discipline. Right. Mm. Don't tweet. The, the the group that, or Facebook the, on the, the main page of the Facebook and say it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a process. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so now, what does it say? If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Those are some very strong Yeah, words. we don't even like the IRS right now. Right? <laughs> what was uh, Zacchaeus? Yeah, he was a tax collector. What was Matthew? The same. Right? And what did Jews think of tax collectors? They didn't like him very much. And Not Matthew wrote this, and he's a tax collector. Exactly. Yep. Whoa, mind blown. <laughs> Treat me like they treated me before I was saved. <laughs> yeah. And so... What do we do with Gentiles and tax collectors? We Well, they're not part of the church they're so not. here he's talking about excommunication right yes these are people who are not converted the, that language is talking about people outside the church right so you're to remove the person who refuses to repent from membership from membership why because if you let it go on then people are going to think in the church i could just sin and and that festers and it shows that god himself doesn't really care about sin it goes against the gospel. So the, just real quick, the steps. Number one, you go to the person. Number two, if they don't listen, you bring two or three. If they don't listen to even the two or three, you bring it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, you treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile, and you remove them from the church, excommunication, remove them out, right? So now the question is, how do you treat the person? You evangelize them. You bring the gospel to them just like you would to any other unsaved person. They, because only the gospel can can draw that person to Christ. You know, you're not mean to them, Glenn? You don't hold a grudge against them? You don't get angry with them? Why does this sound like my autobiography going on right now? <laughs> but no, you, you, don't, you can't. You can't. And I mean, the Bible is very clear about we treat our enemies as our friends. We love our enemies. Love your enemies. So it, it's not a change in behavior towards them, but, it, but there is a separation, right? There is. And what's the goal of excommunication? Reconciliation. Restoration. Right? We want the person to repent. We want to have fellowship again. And so what we see here is Jesus' model for biblical forgiveness. Well, let's, not, let's get back to why it's important. So like we just were saying, that it's, it's excommunication level issue if you don't repent. And I think on an individual level... We cannot forgive people who do not repent, who do not say what they're, they're, they're repenting against. It's a big deal. And this is why church membership must be in a church, not just everybody's in a tender. You can't 
excommunicate someone who's not a member because they're not a member of the church. And yes, it is important and commanded that we are members, not just people who frequent the church. So we began this by by giving that example about the man who says, as a Christian, I've learned that we're supposed to forgive first. That's not true. No. Clearly. Because we're supposed to rebuke first. Exactly. And, and so the most loving thing we can do is rebuke and the most loving and the most godly thing a person can do is to repent and forgive and reconcile. So in issues of things uh, concerning the church, being assured of our salvation, the issue of how do we appoint elders in a church and how do we deal with forgiveness all shows that God is a God of order. Yes. And a God of structure. Yes. And we can't just make up our own ways of doing things. We have a book that addresses all of these things and any issue that we could possibly come up with as goes the church. And so we need to look to it and we need to follow what it tells us to do. And I think the beauty of it is it doesn't give us like these these things that lock us into patterns that we can just repeat mindlessly it really requires a heart and a love of christ to apply these rules but everything we need to know about how to live is in the bible yeah it's not just like a rule book there are principles here and and, and there is a format that shows us how to exist and how to treat one another and how we need to think about these things from a biblical worldview. And I want to say thank everyone for the questions that they forwarded. Keep them coming. We want to address the things that you think are important. And I'd like to close with this verse that we closed with last time. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you for taking this time to stop and think about it. If you would like to contact us, please email us at stopandthinkcrew at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at www.stopandthinkpodcast.com. This podcast is listener supported by generous people like you. You can give a tax deductible donation at our affiliate ministry at www.soulfishingministries.org and click on our donate link to give securely through PayPal. Thank you for listening to Stop and Think About It.